Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Michelle Onthin is here to, on behalf of Penn Melbourne. Penn Melbourne is one of 147 Penn international organisations around the world whose members are writers and focused on the art of writing and the freedom of expression. And this Saturday, there is a fundraiser for Myanmar taking place at the Lamama Courthouse Theatre. My usual disclaimer, I'm the chair of the Committee of Management of Lamama. I'm not benefiting financially in any way in promoting events presented by Lamama. In this case, less presented by Lamama, more using the venue. Michelle, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I suspect not a lot of people are aware that there was uh, a military coup in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, last year. Uh, A coup whose ramifications are ongoing uh, and one only needs to look at some of the headlines at the moment to hear about death sentences, abusive forces, bodies washing up on beaches and so forth. Talk to us a little bit about the situation in Myanmar for people who aren't familiar with it. Right. So in February 2021, there was a military coup. And now it's, um, I guess, 15, 16 months later. And the situation has become extremely serious. Um, It continues to be serious. Um, People might be familiar with the civil disobedience movement, which um, made headlines last year. In fact, they've been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize in 2022. And they really were committed to um, resisting the military um, junta by peaceful means, incredibly creative means. They were led in many cases by people who were um, writers, poets, artists. Um, And so writers, poets and artists have very much been a target of the military. Um, At the moment, I think the last count, there's something like 18 1,500 people who've been killed in this action um, and tens of, thousand, tens of thousands of people who are under arrest, detained in some way, shape or form. The exact figures are difficult to ascertain because, you know, people just disappear. In fact, on the death lists as well, you find um, there are names of people, but there's also unknown, 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 because people, you know, they're taken away. There's a witness that saw something happened, and, you know, the body is never recovered. So the situation is serious, and the civil disobedience movement and the poets, writers, and artists of Myanmar have been incredibly brave for a very long time. It's been 14 months, and this is a conflict. Um, people who want democracy, that's going on on our doorstep. Um, and because it's long and drawn out, I think it's kind of fallen a bit off the headlines, but, you know, it. It's still going on, and I think one of the things that's really important to the poets, artists, and writers of Myanmar is to know that they're seen, and that's one of the reasons why we're holding this event on Saturday, um, a kind of solidarity as much as a fundraiser. Now, you were born in Burma, as it was called then, so this is, for you, a, a deeply personal event. It is personal. So one of the things that's um, unusual about Myanmar or Burma, as it was called when I was born there, is that there have actually been three coups, 1962... 1988, um, 2007, there was a revolution, and then now this coup in 2021. And the resistance um, to military government and the push for democracy is a long-standing fight. What has happened is in the last 10 years, there was a kind of quasi-democracy, there was a real lifting and a kind of incredible flowering and economic growth, you know, 
Burma, Myanmar was a kind of um, democratic hope in the region. In fact, Barack Obama visited there. Hillary Clinton visited there. Um, It was an incredible moment in many ways. You know, press freedom kind of flourished and a huge outpouring of um, art, literature, and a lot of stuff online too. But that has been marred, of course, because there's been other sectarian violence, there's been violence against ethnicities, and then, of course, now there's this coup, this kind of power grab. An unsuccessful coup, I think, because um, the army, while they try to maintain control of the country, it's not really, that's in dispute. Why do you think it is that poets and writers and artists and hip-hop artists and other creatives are always the first in not necessarily the very first, but often in the very first wave of of people to be targeted by reactionary governments, whether they're far left or far right, they cr- seem to crack down on free thinkers. That's because the tool of um, oppressive regimes is fear and silence. And the people who speak up, the people who need um, to express themselves are writers and artists and, you know, hip-hop artists and musicians. They're the people who kind of create civil society in a way. You know, we're the ones who do the dialogue. We're the ones who do the thinking. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's, you know, conservative. But, you know, that's what we do. And so when you do silence writers and poets, what you're doing is shutting down um, discussion. And, you know, that's democracy, right? We kind of con- come to consensus. We discuss these things. It's also about, um, you know, new ideas and thoughts. During the worst years of the junta, people, parents actually stopped their children from reading books because they were frightened of those new ideas. And returning to that kind of situation where you're not allowed to, um, you know, look at anything new or just entertain an idea where you have to police your mind, where you have to self-censor. I think that's one of the reasons there's been such an incredible mass um, protest against government. And, you know, let's not mince words. People are facing bullets. They're facing incredible violence. They're facing death. Um, And their desire to protect their freedom of expression, their freedom to to not be fearful, to not be silenced, they're prepared to die for it. And I think that's something that, you know, we really should be acknowledging. (laughs) So the fundraiser that's taking place this Saturday, the 28th of May, 2pm at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre in Drummond Street, Carlton, this is as much, um, what, a consciousness-raising, an awareness-raising event as it is a fundraiser specifically. This is a way to try to get the situation in Myanmar back into discourse and, and conversation. Yeah, it's that and, I, as I said, you know, kind of solidarity and acknowledgement. So it's going to be an amazing event. So we've got bilingual readings of poetry in English and in language. One of the things we've been very conscious of is that, you know, Myanmar is incredibly diverse and there's plenty of different um, ethnicities, many of whom are persecuted. So um, people might have heard of the whole Rohingya um, genocide a couple of years ago. So we've really been um, careful to have Rohingya readers. We have Chin readers and we have um, Myanmar readers. Um, We are also very conscious that one of the biggest um, tools of oppression is to deny people access to the internet and um, digital spaces. And so we're we're planning a live broadcast as well and hoping to kind of reach people that way. But that's a real acknowledgement of the, the role that the digital plays in our lives in terms of freedom of expression and, you know, reaching audience and, you know, that kind of freedom to be who you are. So that's going to happen. 
The other thing that's really important to remember is that we actually have quite a large um, Burmese or Myanmar community here. So, you know, this picks up on that as well. You know, Australia, one of the greatest multicultural societies in the world. And so that's really a part of, you know, what we're doing here is kind of acknowledging that. Um, yeah, and it's we've got some amazing readers. We've got some readers who are will probably be known to um, your listeners. Sammy Shaw and Arnold Zabel will be doing some work with us as well. But again, we've got a lot of people... Um, who will be reading in language. So um, the poetry that we've chosen is from writers from these different ethnicities, and there will be some prose as well. We'll also be addressed, I think, by Mathita, who is from um, the international um, chapter of Penn and somebody who's been very instrumental in um, the, the kind of uh, support for democracy in the country. As an organisation, Penn uh, is focused on writers in prison, for example. It's focused on supporting writers who are being oppressed by their governments and so forth. As an organisation, I believe that Penn is also encouraging people who are concerned about the situation in Myanmar to write to the foreign minister. We've just had a change of government. That means, I believe, Penny Wong is now the new foreign minister, was just sworn in at the start of the week. What hope is there that the Australian government's... uh, Well, the change of government uh, will bring in perhaps a renewed focus to the situation in Myanmar? Well, that's an interesting question, I think. I, one of the things I did see at the weekend is that there's a, a, a kind of renewal of focus on Southeast Asia, particularly. Um, so I think it's, you know, this is about people, I guess, and it, it would be helpful to get um, Australian government um, representatives to do more, to kind of engage a bit more, um, to be more upfront about some of the things that are happening. But really, it's about first of all, realising that these things are happening and kind of coming and supporting us. But yes, that would definitely be something that (laughs) is worth doing. Now, if you want to attend this Saturday's fundraiser, which is called They Shoot Poets, Don't They? It's taking place this Saturday, 2pm, at La Mama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. The event will run for about 90 minutes. You can book by going to lamama.com.au. And if you'd like to learn more about Penn Melbourne, uh, the local chapter of Penn International and its activities, then you can go to penmelbourne.org. And certainly in terms of the campaign for Myanmar, definitely uh, contact Penny Wong, contact our new foreign minister to ask her to speak out on behalf of the government. It's one of those things that it's often... We know the solution and change will have to come and will come from the people of Myanmar themselves, but having external pressure can help. Yeah, absolutely. Being seen. and But I think that's something that the civil defence movement and people of Myanmar talk about all the time. You know, it's their country. You know, this is what they, they need to do. So, yeah, that's definitely happening. But, you know, (laughs) writers cannot exist without readers. And um, it's really difficult to continue with a movement um, when, you you know, you don't feel seen. So this is important in that way. And people can just rock up on Saturday. We'd be happy to see them. It's going to be a fantastic event. And, um, you know, we had a similar thing last year. It was very moving and very funny and and a fantastic afternoon. So I really hope to see people there. So tickets at the door at the La Mama Courthouse this Saturday at 2 p.m. Or you can book online by going to lamama.com.au to book for They Shoot Poets, Don't They? fundraiser for Myanmar this Saturday, 2pm, presented by Penn Melbourne. 
Michelle, will you be reading yourself? Because I know you've got uh, a YA novel, well, sorry, a children's novel and an adult novel published as well. Um, I'll be doing kind of the, uh, you know, the kind of MC stuff. <laughs> so I might jump in and do that kind of thing. But, you know, we really are focusing on, on the, in, um, the bilingual readers. And, you know, the title of the thing is They Shoot Poets because they do shoot poets. And so, you know, those words being heard, I think one of the poets we, we are reading is um, a poet who was, who was killed in a protest. Um, and so I'm really feeling that my role is to make sure that voices that don't get heard are heard. So that's my job. <laughs> Go to penmelbourne.org for details or lamama.com.au to book for They Shoot Poets, Don't They? fundraiser for me and Ma this Saturday, the 28th, 2pm at the Lamama Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street, Carlton. I've been chatting with Michelle on Thin. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Triple R. Melbourne International Comedy Festival has come and gone, but one of the things that made this year's festival an interesting challenge for comedians to navigate was COVID. Uh, some people got very, very sick and had to cancel the entire run of their shows. Some people got to do one or two shows and then had to cancel. Uh, other people sailed blithely through, completely unaffected. And in the midst of all of this, there were also awards being presented. One of those awards is called the Golden Gibbo, and it's an award presented annually by the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Uh, and and it, it's a celebration, I guess, of... The independent spirit of comedy, uh, as typified by the late, great Linda Gibson, who the award is named after, the winner of the Golden Gibbo this year was Alex Hines for her show To Chappelle and Back. Alex joins me in the studio now. Alex, welcome. Good morning. So there's so much to unpack and explore with your show. Let's start with COVID. Um, you, you, you got to do what? Two shows of your whole run? No, uh, yeah, I got to do four, four before I was struck down. Yes. by by the COVIDs and then had to cancel the rest of the season because yeah, couldn't, couldn't continue. <laughs> I was a biohazard and very unwell. <laughs> but in those four shows, clearly enough judges came to see it that they went, this show is, is independent, it bucks trends, it pursues the artist's idea more than any commercial allure. So you won the Golden Gibbo. Congrats. No, thank you so much. And it was proper crazy because what happened was we had, uh, when I found out I had COVID, obviously we cancelled the season. I got off the phone to my venue, the Butterfly Club, and we just cancelled it except for the last two shows because the theory was, you know, you isolate for the designated time and then you can come back and finish your season. Um, so we'd cancelled the shows and kept the last two on. Um, and then I found out after cancelling the shows within 15 minutes that I'd been nominated for the Golden Gibbo. I was like, what the hell is happening? I'm lying on my deathbed. And they're saying, can we get tickets to your show tonight? I was like, I'm so sorry. You actually can't because I'm dying. Um, and then, yeah, basically what had happened is my boyfriend had filmed a show. So I submitted the video. And so I think that's what got sent around to the panel of judges and they made the decision from that. That, I think, which is 
insane because film theatre is probably one of the greatest tragedies of our time. <laughs> There's certainly, uh, having sat on a number of funding panels in the past, uh, the phrase death by video has been bandied <laughs> yeah. around a bit because something sounds great and then it's been shot so poorly or in a way that doesn't do it justice and yeah, it can drain the life out of a work, particularly if it's just if it's one camera up the back of the room, a static shot, it's not designed to be watched that way. No, not at all. So I was, honestly I would have been surprised if it had been off a live judging, but the video judging really blew my mind. Which clearly then speaks to the quality of the show itself. If it can transcend the challenges of being watched in a medium it wasn't intended to be watched yeah. in, it's got to be a pretty good show. So let's talk about To Chappelle and Back having its return season at the Butterfly Club. from uh, It's on now until the 28th of May. Why create a show about Chappelle Corby? Oh, I know. And do you know what, Richard? It's the second time I've done it. <laughs> I just, I'm so fascinated by Chappelle Corby. I'm so fascinated by her story. Uh, you know, she's somebody that basically everybody in the country knows about, but nobody knows anything about her actual story. You know, they just know the name, the boogie board, and you cannot mention Chappelle Corby without somebody saying, did she do it or didn't she? You know, that is the beginning, middle and end of her story. So I'm just, I have read her book and the revised edition. I'm so fascinated by the woman and the human behind the story that we were given by the media. And so from that just thought I want to make a, I want to make a show about the millennials Ned Kelly you know I want to <laughs> I want to make the work that is a sincere sort of excavation of who the person is that was in all of those headlines I mean there is now a generation of people who probably don't know who Chappelle Corby is because so she was arrested in what 2004 yes uh, re- eventually released from prison after being sentenced for tw- to a 20 year term and arrested and charged and sentenced because of smuggling cannabis into Indonesia, into Bali specifically, Mm. which she denies she knew about. Yes. Um, But since being released from jail, she's... She's, what, been on Dancing with the Stars? Dancing with the Stars, Richard, SAS, Australia. And, uh, yeah, so I just think it's very funny um, that, yeah, you're right, there is a whole generation of people now who probably don't know her. But thanks to reality television, we're getting an intergenerational Australian icon. Um, Yeah, so I I think it's just she's fascinating to me. Her story's fascinating to me. And I think the beauty of this show, because we've had people from international audience like people who you know aren't from Australia who don't know her at all who have come to see the show and have really enjoyed it is you don't need to know Chappelle's story to enjoy the show because it is more about the human experience you know than it is about her story it's there are parallels perhaps with Lindy Chamberlain this is a country which likes to see women punished for some reason truly and then afterwards different aspects of stories come out and artists become fascinated with them. Uh, Lindy Chamberlain's been the res- uh, the focus of a play, uh, uh, Letters to Lindy, which looks at the 
the vast number of letters people actually wrote to her while she was in prison, for example, uh, and what's happened to her since. And now you've got this show about Chappelle Corby, which is what really exploring your fascination with her as much as Ch- Chappelle Corby herself. Yeah, so the, well, the show, it's interesting that you say about Lindy Chamberlain because I really wanted to involve that somehow in the narrative. But it is, you're so right, a reoccurring pattern. You know, it's Lindy Chamberlain. Same, Britney Spears. You know, it's just like Amy Winehouse, Paris Hilton, women, Janet Jackson, constantly dragged by the media. It's whatever's most lucrative. And now the moment is feminism and media can make money from building women up. So, like, let's get some revival stories on the table. You know, I'm just, that's fascinating in itself. But what what the show is really focusing on is sort of extrapolating from all of that and all of Chappelle's stories, diary entries and books and sort of throwing it into this... I guess you'd say Chappelle's sort of multiverse um, and it's using this ancient doppelganger curse that tethers a sort of thin-lipped girl from Brisbane, fictional girl Alex, uh, who's tethered to her doppelganger, Chappelle Corby, and chaos ensues. (laughs) How much of a doppelganger is Chappelle Corby for you? Oh, do you know what, Richard? When I was in high school... I remember my IT teacher saying, Alex, you look just like Chappelle Corby. And it used to upset me so much because my friends, you know, they get told they look like the Spice Girls and I'm here looking like Chappelle Corby, which was very upsetting at the time. But now I'm like, well, it's iconic now, so I have to lean in. (laughs) So you've leaned in in such a way that you've written a show about that, uh, including a couple of musical numbers. Of course. Uh, We've got the Balinese cell block tango. We've got a fever dream Mr Squiggle number. And we've got, got, of course, a Bonnie Tyler number as well. (laughs) There are some musical numbers. There's a bit of everything in this show um yeah it's definitely not a musical but there are all sorts the fever dream manifests in all sorts of ways which is an intriguing idea for a show because i'm sure there may be points at the audience uh points in the show where the audience is going am i watching alex am i watching alex being Chappelle? what's going on where does one persona end and another one start Yes, precisely, because, yeah, with with this sort of using this sort of doppelganger tethering curse, the show navigates very much the split duality of being Chappelle, being Alex, because really underneath it all is about being human, uh, la-di-da. But I'm very grateful to my wonderful director, Sarah Stafford, because I came to her with the most insane ideas, Richard. I cannot even tell you the poor girl. And she (laughs) was able to distill it into a very cohesive work that really spoke to, you know, exploring trauma and the sense of identity. And, uh, yeah, so she did a very good job of um, sort of, crafting it into a cohesive piece. The story of somebody being arrested for drug importation and imprisoned and protesting their innocence, Mm. where do you find the comedy in that? So I guess the thing is, is, so the Balinese cell block tango, for example, um, is actually just using a lot of quotes from my story, Chappelle Corby's book. Um, and Chappelle, as opposed to your story. As, as opposed to my story, which honestly is not as interesting. Um, but it's using quotes and I, honestly, Chappelle Corby is a comedic genius. She is so funny. But the way she talks about – she just has such a sense of humour and it's also – 
I do want to make it clear that I'm not making fun of her. And I actually messaged her about the show and said, you know, I want you to know I'm not making fun of you. This isn't about, you know, making light of your situation. It's very real. It's very trauma for very real trauma for her. But the comedy comes from the absurdity and the comedy comes from, I guess, skewing the preconceived ideas that the audience have about who Chappelle is. The, and the comedy comes from, yeah, I guess playing with these notions of who they think Chappelle Corby is, flipping it on its head. And obviously, like honestly, I think the best comedy comes from tension and tragedy. So it's actually really rife in a story like this. Just the slightest little twitch can change something so tragic into something very funny, which is a great way to get a message to an audience, I think. Now, Alex, we talked about the way that the media likes to punish women and the, the, the kind of myths around that. I wonder, in terms of Chappelle Corby's story and Chappelle herself and the media narrative around her, how much do you think class played a role in the way she was portrayed in the media? This kind of uh, the, the Bogan stereotype, for example. Do you think class was a significant factor in the, the collective mocking, the collective punishment of Chappelle? Absolutely. And I think actually it's really interesting because I guess in Australia, class, well, I think the thing with Chappelle was originally it was very much why does everyone care? Is it you know, is it because she's pretty? Is it because she's a girl next door? Is it because, you know, there was all these theories of why the media cares about her so much? And I think the Australian public are known for caring about the kind of working class, like, you know, down to earth could have been one of us people. But when that sort of wasn't generating enough income, then they flipped it and made it about the family and dragging the family and stuff. And I just think it's so interesting that, you know, this is addressed in the show often it's like class and your gender that will determine if you have a presumption of innocence or not. And it's it, it, with this, it's like the story is great because it could have been one of us, how shocking. But when that runs out of money, then it's like, yeah, well, she's just an Australian bogan. Like, let's drag her for that now. And I think, yeah, if she was a, a rich upper class, upper middle class, white girl, it could have been, you know, how upsetting her parents are so well-to-do and from a private school, there's no way she did it. You know what I mean? It's just, it's so interesting because she, and she says this in her book as well, like I was on trial for what my family did because she's, it was trial by media was what she suffered from a lot as well. So definitely I think class plays a part and gender as well, which is, yeah, all very fascinating to me. And lots to unpack and Lots to craft comedy from as well. Yes. Yeah. And I think that the beauty of this story is, well, of her story, is that it is so unique to her. But then also the experience, you know, I was reading her book. I know this this is going to sound ridiculous, but I was reading her book in lockdown and I was posting a quote from her book a day because the (laughs) the way she talks about her life in Balinese prison, which obviously is not the same as a lockdown funded, you know, getting job job keeper in Melbourne. Obviously not the same, but the way her words resonated with me at that time, I was like, wow, I can really relate. I'm no, it wasn't the same experience, but it's just tapping into something. You know, people say, how can you relate to Chappelle Corby? It's because she's human and we have shared experiences and that's what I'm interested in exploring with this show. 
If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with comedian Alex Hines about the award-winning show, the Golden Gibbo Award-winning, To Chappelle and Back, which is having a return season at the Butterfly Club. It's on now, performances tonight, Friday night and Saturday night, 8.30pm, upstairs in the Butterfly Club's main theatre. If you've not been to the Butterfly Club before, five Carson Place in Melbourne, just off uh, Little Collins Street, around the corner from the town hall. Now, Alex, you said you've been in contact with Chappelle Corby to say... I am not mocking you. This is, it's a comedy, but I'm doing this in a serious way. Yes. I understand she sent you a clock. She did. It's my, it's the only possession I truly love. It's my family heirloom. <laughs> why did she send a clock? <laughs> well, because I did a photo of myself as her. As I said, I'm a doppelganger. And she, I tagged her in on Instagram and she said, Alex, thank you so much for this non-vile representation of me. I love it. And then we started talking because at the time we were in lockdown and I said, I've been reading your books and posting a quote a day to give myself something to do, Chappelle, you're an inspiration. And we've just been talking to and fro. And, yeah, then one day, because she makes a clock on a Wednesday, actually, Richard, I simply must plug her clocks right now. I told her I would plug them after the show. But, yes, if you ever go on to Chappelle Corby's Instagram on a Wednesday night, she makes her clocks and you can buy them. But, anyway, I was looking at her Instagram one Wednesday night and she was like, Alex, I'll send you one as a gift for free. Express post as well, uh, the royal treatment. And, yeah, so she sent me a clock and love it. The idea that she makes clocks intrigues me in so many ways because she was locked in a jail cell in which the passage of time is a slow nightmare and now she responds by creating timepieces. Actually, okay, this is... This woman was sentenced to time, served time, comes out, makes money from time. She is an icon. She is the moment. She is a legend. Now, come on now. (laughs) To Chappelle and Back, created and performed by Alex Hines, is on at the Butterfly Club tonight, tomorrow, and Saturday night at 8.30pm. The Butterfly Club is 5 Carson Place in Melbourne, and you can book by going to the Butterfly Club. Alex, thanks so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. It's time for us to think about Greek mythology now and particularly the story of Hercules, who everybody... tends to see as a hero. He's in everything from Marvel comic books to uh, classic retellings of the Greek myths. And many people would be familiar with the 12 labours of Hercules, these feats of, of remarkable strength. But no one seems to talk about the fact that he murdered his wife and children. Daniel Schlusser joins me in the studio to talk about the new production from the Daniel Schlusser Ensemble, Hercules, at Arts House in North Melbourne. Is this one of the formative stories of toxic masculinity that you've decided to revisit? To my knowledge, it's um, it's one of the, uh, you know, in the sense that Euripides is often described as the inventor of modern drama and the, his, his claim to that fame is because he was uh, interested in psychology of the individual um, while it retained its mythic sort of ritual status, the theatre was changed irrevocably by his characterization. And to discover a text that he wrote that indeed deals with 
the Medea story, in a sense, it's uh, it's just as shocking and um, and foundational, I think, um, that a that a that a male hero might be revealed to have this sort of um, other dark side. Is uh, it's an interesting thing, and I think the fact that it is a buried thing in the terms of it's not very well known canonically speaking is also speaks to its kind of invisible presence in our in our culture. Um, the fact that it's been buried is fascinating as well because it doesn't feel necessarily like today it would be consciously buried. People would go, "That is a dark and horrible aspect of a of a heroic character." Let's either just not talk about the character at all or at least let's airbrush that part out. Let's, it, we can't handle that. We won't deal with that. Whereas why do you think it was overlooked in the past? I mean, in the 70s, for example, kind of when I was a kid, I was reading ancient Greek myth, that side of Hercules wasn't written about even then. It's, That's why right. Why has it vanished? Well, I, I mean, you could write a thesis on that topic. I'm not... Um, uh, an expert, but my experience of it is that you read plays as a theatre director or as, a, as an interested drama reader, and often they're presented to you within a frame of a, a qualitative decision. And so those editors of the 50s and 60s were those key translations, you know, the ones that we were reading and are still reading in some cases, they were making kind of really interesting institutionalised sort of foundational decisions about what makes a good play. And Lo and behold, funnily enough, this is considered to be not quite so well made or a problem play, not something you might read as one of the many plays, but it's not one of the key, you know, works of Euripides. And just that, even that act culturally is is super interesting. And, of course, we're in a completely different landscape now and the generational changes, um, you know, no one would take you seriously now, I think, if you said this just is not a well-made play. You'd say, well, what the hell does that mean? That's a three-act structure and an extremely patriarchal dramatic form um, with, a, with, a, with a very, um, you know, sort of, uh, uh, what's the word? It's, 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 it's an idea of what climax and resolution is that is almost in, inextricably bound with the male orgasm rather than the female orgasm. I mean, we want to be crude about it. That's, that's where we are. And, um, and I think to look at a play now, I mean, uh, someone like Anne Carson has dealt with a number of those plays by Euripides. She calls them the grief plays. And, of course, the form and its difference is now fascinating and actually you, you realise that sophistication is, is, is elsewhere. It's not in, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, the halls of academe don't understand it, um, possibly still. So in creating this production of Hercules, you're, you're not only creating a contemporary work of theatre, but you're simultaneously grappling with the curation of the canon of the past and what was considered good, appropriate, etc. And, and that is a conversation we continue to have. We are regularly questioning and revisiting the canon. Yes. But often we're challenging the canon as opposed to saying, hold on, why did you leave this out? That's right. And, um, and a large thread uh, of this production is... Uh, deeply interested in the idea of which stories do we tell and which are not just appropriate or 
but actually effective? Like in what sense is storytelling still a magical art that helps us at moments of, 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 of violence or grief or, or even grace? You know, what do we need to hear now is a big question. And, and, and in fact, we cycle through a whole bunch of other stories as well. It's sort of, that's partly where the 12 labours comes in. It's a collection. It's a sort of compendium of, of feats. And we're interested in, um, you know, if you, t- if you ask the question, what is the emotional labour um, of the individual and particularly the woman and particularly the female actor in this situation, what are the equivalent labours that we could talk about that aren't about killing um, beautiful creatures and, and decimating the landscape? Um, let's try and find an alternative. Let's try and put something into that gap that that, that nourishes us. And, and of course, it's not that simplistic. Um, Theatre problematizes. you know, that's what its great strength is. And I think that we still are grappling with the fact that it is there and it does uh, still exert its influence on us. And whether it's... Um, whether people know Hercules is kind of irrelevant to the, the, the work. Um, we certainly don't explicitly talk a great deal about it, although that key action is at the heart of it. The, the terrible murder of his wife and children is definitely its heart. Uh, but we're kind of... Uh, we're, we're acknowledging that you have to dig deep, you have to go into the darkness to get the light. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's alternatives being presented as well. In terms of great strengths, one of your strengths as a theatre maker, Daniel, is the rigour that you bring to the work. And in this instance, I'm really intrigued to hear about how you have developed the work in collaboration with the three female actors you are working with, all of whom are the mothers of young boys. Correct. Uh, And I would imagine that that those discussions that you have had with them around what it means to, to, to be raising a man in a, in a climate today, the nature of, of being a boy, the, the, the casual violence, the kind of the rage that is associated with, with masculinity yeah. that some men learn to tame over time and others do not. Yeah. How has that all fed into the development and the creation of the work? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, thank you. That's, um, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And um, I was doing the math just this morning, I think we've spent seven years making this work. Obviously, two of those were, were, were slightly involuntary. We were, we were held up by a, uh, an epidemic. Um, but the initial instinct was exactly that. It was partly realising that we were all of a certain age. So the, um, the sort of practical economic realities of being theatre makers was suddenly uh, really visible as unsustainable and and really emotionally quite uh, depleting activity to be doing and we also happened to have uh, children that at that time identified as boys and um, and that was the kernel and the three performers have stayed with the project over that entire length of time and we've had two other developments Arts House have been sort of this amazing nurturing production house across that time they've they've consistently kind of Followed us through the permutations that we've that we've come up with, and the um, I suppose that the I mean the the realization really is that you can't really do it any other way. I don't think, or certainly I believe so. I think you you know in any creative pursuit, you kind of of course you benefit sometimes from an adrenalized deadline, and you kind of everyone pulls together in ways that makes magic, but. Really, at the end of the day, it's the decisions we made seven years ago that we came back to after lots of exploration that are the ones that really sing and, and that 
I think an audience can feel that they are, you know, in the presence of something that has been deeply, deeply thought through and, and made, we've made many permutations of it and we've decided this is the one we want to be putting on stage. So it's got that kind of layered richness and everyone is commenting at the moment, we've been open for two nights, that the the sense of groundedness of those performers is really exceptional, that they have such a deep connection to what they're doing and you have such trust in, in what they're telling you. Or, or, or even um, the, the other common thread is, thank heaven people aren't telling me things from the stage. It's something you enter into. You kind of come into our world and, and you can watch and make meaning as you see fit. We're not there, you know, shoving a, a, an interpretation down your throat. And, and those sorts of things are definitely the benefit of, of the longer-term gestation. And, yeah, that's been an absolute privilege to, to have that work out that way. That notion of entering the world is conveyed also through the design elements, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really... Um, it's uh, it's a sort of contemporization, but, but I think that that phase is over now of contemporizing old works. I think it's it was exciting and interesting, but it's also kind of simplistic. And I think what we do much more is we run... We run a thread of a contemporary sort of narrative uh, version of a similarly horrific incident... Um, and then we kind of set it in play with the ancient thread and it's housed, if you like, together. And so the, the ways they reflect off each other and kind of augment each other in different ways is extremely subtle and, and sort of organic and, and a constant kind of a bubbling of meaning. And, and in fact, the, the, the beautiful thing is that uh, no two audience members will walk away with an exactly the same interpretation of what they just witnessed and... Um, I think that where we are firm and 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 clear and and sort of committed is that the there is a there is a profound idea at the heart of it that that beauty has its uses and that it's not just aesthetics it's about finding beauty as a response to ugliness or as a response to those grief uh, inducing events that shake us and and, uh, and partly we are really centred in having been uh, in lockdown for two years and coming across all kinds of uh, manifestations of that sort of social upheaval and revelation of the sort of structural deficiencies around us and, and, and the, the strength or the weaknesses of our social connections. There's been a lot of loneliness and a lot of grieving on a kind of different scale and we're kind of holding all that and really trying to... Yeah, we really commit to this. The design team are spectacularly good and it, it just achieves a kind of beauty that I think I've 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 reached for before and maybe achieved once before in my career but it, it really is stunning to watch that idea of trying to use beauty and mm. to use the beautiful art which is theater mm. to explore the ugliness of life mm. is a fascinating one and one that I've seen explored a few times in in and and explored well in recent theatre productions. I'm thinking, for example, of uh, Dennis Kelly's play Girls and Boys, uh-huh. which I saw at Adelaide Festival and I know the MTC are, uh, are doing an upcoming yep. production of as well. It also strikes me as something that it would be very easy to get wrong. Talk to us about walking that tightrope of going, we need to explore this subject, we don't want to glorify it. We yep. need to present it but not beat our audience over the head with it clearly right. there's there's a degree of restraint yes. involved talk to us about uh, uh, knowing where to 
tether and tighten and mm. where to loosen and relax. I think the, uh, there's another big bear trap sitting next to both of those, which is the sentimentality. And it's similarly um, something we... we I, prog- I think with Pia Gint some 15 years ago, I'm not sure how long ago that show was, but I kind of w- allowed myself to get closer to the edges of those those um, those areas and risk being sentimental and risk being romantic, uh, which I think is also important now. Uh, I think my younger self was, was more kind of... Uh, uh, cynical is not the right word, but determined not to be uh, sentimental and easy. Um, but I think your point is, um, is there's sort of two parts to it that, that brings to mind, in one sense, dealing with the issue and its ugliness in relation to beauty was very much informed about uh, with the release of Ocean Vong's first volume of poetry um, and just his, well, their presence in general um, there's a lot of that going on in the poetry of Ocean Vuong where he, 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 there will often be an absence. There will often be a kind of, a, you know, he, he'll frame the, the, the ugliness of an event, but the actual poetry is sustaining and nourishing and, and, and celebratory. Um, so there's this sort of uh, wonderful um, sort of parallel activity going on with the gestation of this show with with the discovery of of those poems and it's i can't um i can't uh, overestimate that that the that the value of that particular poet um the value of uh the Jeric, Derek Jarman's latest the collection of writings from Dungeness that includes some meditations on on death and and grief and beauty in ways that are absolutely where we want to be and and local poet and playwright Emily Collier also her collection came out and she has a poem in that called Waking the Furies. We read it um, towards the end of this rehearsal process and it was uncanny that, that, that a text would exist that was so... It, uh, we were almost tempted to include it, but then it would have seemed as if we were doing the poem because it was so in line with the exploration and it's, also, well, it's, a, it's similar. I mean, her poem perhaps focuses more on, you know, the female rage and, and its uh, its 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 situation in relationship to beauty and and empowerment and uh, it, it, it definitely is its own thing. But these, it's just really interesting to me. I don't think poetry has ever informed a production so much as this one um, in terms of how to approach um, uh, that subject. It's it's yeah, it's been it's been quite a lovely way to work. I think we'll continue to do so from here on in. What's the What's it felt like to get this work in front of an audience after seven years of development and gestation? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's been... Um, elation is the is the key term, and I don't mean that to be crass at all because the work is, is grief-drenched in many ways and the audience's emotional response to that is something we are in the business of looking after. But... Um, but People can see it and they can see the work and they can see the amount of work and they can see the extraordinary sort of artistry that's gone into it and, and it's it's a sense of gratification in that sense for sure. Daniel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Lovely to catch up with you. Yeah, and uh, a reminder, Hercules playing at Arts House in North Melbourne on the corner of Queensbury Street and Errol Street on uh, until the 28th of May, artshouse.com.au for details. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs> <laughs>